What does it mean to exemplify the kingdom? What does it mean to believe this world is not our home? What does it mean to live for something bigger? As we enter into this next turn in Luke, it comes with a cost. And Jesus is now going to set his face to Jerusalem and give us a window on what it looks like to follow him in that direction. Here's what it says. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And then when they went on to another village, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And to yet another, to a third, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one puts his hand to the plow and looks back as fit for the kingdom of God. Here's where we're headed this morning. (laughs) A mistaken view of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem can lead to a mistaken view of discipleship. If, If we don't fully understand what it means that Jesus set his face to Jerusalem, that, that he understood his mission, what he was seeking to accomplish, and that he's become both our substitute and our pace setter, then we're going to have a misunderstanding of what our life looks like here during our time. To really follow Jesus, it means that we treasure Jesus by allowing God to deal with those who oppose him. That we treasure Jesus more than our home, more than our reputation, more than our family. So... If you are ready, whatever might be stirring in your heart, I'm trusting those are Jesus' words, not David's, that might be stirring something in you. So pray with me and we will dig in. Guys, sometimes we are overcome by whatever circumstances, good, bad, or indifferent, that are competing for our affections. May we hear from you a little bit more clearly what it means to truly treasure you and follow you above anything else this life has to offer, that you sit on the throne of our heart and call us to follow after you. Thank you, Jesus, always for your glory, we pray. Amen. So here's where the text leads us. This mistaken view of Jesus' journey to the cross, if we don't understand that as our substitute and our pace setter, then we're going to have a a less clear view of how we live in this life. We treasure Jesus by allowing God to deal with those who oppose him. Here's what the text says. When the days drew near for him, he set his face to Jerusalem. Jesus understood. This wasn't haphazard. He understood he was headed to atone for the sins of the world on the cross. He was headed to die. He set his face. And here's what fascinates me, fully human, fully God, how that works, that's a mystery to me. And yet there's an awareness of that in our humanity, the pain. I don't think that was lost on Jesus. And he sent messengers ahead of him. And when they entered a village to make preparations for him, but 
the people did not receive him because his face was set. So I don't fully understand what that means other than these Samaritans didn't want what Jesus was offering. And the disciples were confused by this because they just understood this was the guy. This was the king. We are following him and we are excited for what he's bringing. And yet some people that they offered this life-giving message of King Jesus to weren't as receptive to it. And they responded. James and John saw that and they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Do you want us to bring judgment right now? Let's condemn these people for their lack of hearing and awareness. Much like Elijah did. We remember that guy. We too think we'll just call down and condemn these guys. And what does Jesus say? Would have loved to have been there for that experience. He turned and rebuked them. And so what do we see that's positive about what these guys are doing? We treasure Jesus by allowing God to deal with those who oppose him. Because I think the disciples got some things right. They went as encouraged by Jesus. He said, go forward. They did. And then they actually engaged others on Jesus' behalf. They started having conversations and, and, and sharing the hope of what this kingdom means. And then they began appraising the spiritual conditions of the Samaritans and they found it wanting. <laughs> they found that these guys weren't experiencing life with, life with Christ, life with Jesus. They appraised accurately what was going on in these people's lives. And they understood the consequences of rejecting Jesus. How might we know they understood the consequences? They wanted to call down fire in that moment and consume these guys. There was a condemnation that they wanted to heap on those because they understood the consequences of rejecting Jesus. And yet, what does Jesus say? But he turned and rebuked too. The disciples. And here's what I love. We don't get to necessarily see all the details, but what it appears happened is the disciples understood and moved on. <laughs> they kept moving on because we're going to see in the next part of the text, others are interested in following. So what do we do with that? What does it mean that we treasure Jesus enough to actually let God deal with those who oppose him? <laughs> in my heart, it reveals there is room to grow in this journey. That's what we keep finding out about these disciples, which often gives me confidence that I go, huh, well, if they're a bunch of knuckleheads, I guess I'm in good company, right? But they took more authority than was given, and it led to this con condemning attitude they had. Around here, the posture we've been trying to take is what, it, what does it mean to interact with those that have yet to treasure Christ with compassion without agreement? So I just want to walk through a few ways that sometimes I might try and take more uh, responsibility or authority than I've actually been given and creep into this condemning posture. What would that look like for us? I think it's just that general attitude of being arrogant, condemning, a condescending attitude that, that somehow I've arrived. I think I've told this story before. There was a guy named Wally Norling. He's on his deathbed. This dude, by all measures, metrics, people will go, that was a successful minister of the gospel. Planted like 30 some odd churches. Chuck Swindoll, Larry Osborne, quote unquote, celebrity guys would say Wally was a meaningful Im impact in their life. And I'm sitting with him as, he, as he's about to die. And I'll never forget this. 
that there, he left this indelible mark, this, 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 this incredible mark on my mind. He, he's, dude's about to die. And he turns to me and he goes, David, I just feel like I got so much left to learn. I'm like, bro, of all the people that have things to learn, you are not it. Like, you, you figured it all out by now, right? The, and yet, what was his posture? It wasn't arrogant, condemning, condescending. It was a posture of learning. To the day he died, he saw this infinite God as someone to continue to lean into and try to understand more fully and apply more deeply to his life. I think it's a posture that I could continue to learn from. What would it mean to take more authority than given? Because sometimes we're condemning in our posture. It feels like sometimes we want to focus on behavior modification. And don't hear me say that seeing behavior shifted is irrelevant, but sometimes we've shifted away from the heart and we've made it more about a shift in behaviors. We look around and, and, uh, and, and there's a movement, right? This LGBTQ community movement, it's Pride Month. Sometimes what it feels like is all we care is if someone wasn't practicing homosexual behavior without fully understanding There's heterosexual sins of pornography or affairs or emotional disconnect in your head that is just as dangerous. We just make it about behavior modification rather than seeing it must be a transformation of the heart. We've taken more authority than given. And where does that critical spirit usually show up? Sometimes your spouse. (laughs) You know, babe, if, if you'd figure this out, then I'd probably figure out my stuff. But until you get your stuff together, uh, let's, let's work on you. Where does that critical spirit most show up? It seems it shows up most to those who are closest to us. That condemning attitude of the area, because who sees it most clearly? Those that are closest to us see those areas of growth. And diminish others' efforts. For me, this is both sometimes in the church family. We package this as prayer requests. Where, you know, can we pray for so-and-so? They just have so much room to grow, right? And we diminish the efforts of others. Whether we verbalize it to others or verbalize it through gossip, we diminish the efforts of others that are still on this ongoing spiritual transformation journey. And that seems to come with the condemning spirit from my vantage point. Or we exclude others through this holy huddle mentality. I don't know if you know this, but we kind of have it all figured out. You walk through these doors, everyone in here has got it solved. So if you don't have your life put together, you just don't make the cut. That feels like an attitude that would be looking through the window of condemnation rather than looking in the mirror saying, we're here because we recognize there's areas to grow and experience more joy in this Savior. Or we give up on people believing they are far, they are too far gone. God couldn't save them. They're too far. There's no chance. I know their story, and God, I, don't, I know you've done a miracle in other ways. I know you parted the sea. I know you dropped manna from heaven, but that person is just too far gone feels like an attitude of, of condemnation, of taking more authority than given. But, 
But here's where you could be going in your heart. I'm feeling pretty good about myself right now. I don't tick any of those boxes. You know, I'm a, I'm a pretty good little Christian hermit, right? I don't, I don't really deal with any of that stuff. I keep to myself, and I'm not condemning, and I, you know, I kind of have a fairly good handle on all that. I think the converse is also an area that reflects something just as dangerous where we take too little responsibility. Compassion without agreement could say that we demonstrate that lack of, or that, that depth of compassion. And yet, what I loved about the disciples, they understood there was something that the Sumerians lacked. And sometimes we take too little responsibility where we don't engage, where we flee some opportunities that God might be inviting us into. Or some of you might be thinking, pastor, isn't that your job? You're the guy. We bring people here so you can seal the deal. And around here, that's just not the posture we take. Because I think something's dangerously shifted in Western evangelical culture about the way we've operated in a local church where we've made church services the place where people get saved and it's pastors' jobs to invite them into faith. Around here, we actually see disciples are made on the playground, disciples are made in the gym, disciples are made in the workplaces. It's actually the joy of believers who gather on Sunday to celebrate this risen Savior and then be sent out every single Sunday. What do we do? We're sent to be the living proof of a loving God everywhere we go. And so I sometimes think we collectively take too little responsibility. Around here, I hope this is our heart. We are letting down our nets in these different places because we do believe we are to engage on Jesus' behalf. And then we are to be making appraisals of spiritual conditions of others. Anyone want to take a guess when I interact with anyone? Uh, what percentage I might be making spiritual appraisals of people's spiritual lives? Anyone want to take a guess? One, 100%, right? Everyone we interact with. Do we have eyes to see and gauge where are they on this spiritual continuum? Are we inviting them more into life with Christ, further up and further in? And then we are to be people helping people understand the consequences. No judgment, no condemnation. But there is an awareness that we have the privilege of inviting people to understand the implications of what it means. Now that already starts to bubble up. Something may be in your heart, even at those words. Here's the hope. We treasure Jesus by allowing God to deal with those who oppose him. We just get to be conduits of his grace. And then Jesus continues. We treasure Jesus more than our home. Here's what he says. And they went on to another village. And as they were going along the road, I love this. Where does this stuff happen? On the journey as you walk in our homes, in our neighborhoods, everywhere we go along the road, random circumstances, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes, birds have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. This call that says, man, Jesus, substitute and pace setter, looks at the comforts of life and says there's something more important. Now, don't hear me say that we shouldn't own a home, right? Don't hear me say you shouldn't be living in a home. 
and having a pillow to rest your head on versus a rock. Don't hear that. Because sometimes we start making rules about this stuff. I don't think Jesus is making rules. Instead, he's giving us a heart posture. Because different people are going to have different idols in their life that, that, that clamor for the affections of our heart. And Jesus knows what those are. There's an enemy that knows what those are as well and will tempt us to believe those things are better than Christ. Jesus says, do you understand in your heart, do, do you believe if these things go away? But what if, what if, we, what if the girls didn't win that championship game because they ended up winning it? Is Jesus still better? You heard the one say, I won it all in her field. This was a pinnacle. And yet she was left feeling like there was still more. What is that in your life that sometimes clamors to believe it can offer more than it actually can? I love this quote from Eugene Peterson. He says this. Millions of people in our culture make decisions for Christ, but there is a dreadful attrition rate. Many claim to have been born again, but the evidence for mature Christian disciples is slim. In our kind of culture, anything, even news about God, can be sold if packaged freshly. Now, this is about 20 years ago. But when it loses its novelty, it goes in the garbage heap. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for the long apprenticeship in what earlier Christians called holiness. Religion in our time has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made when we have adequate leisure. And sometimes people view me as your tour guide, showing you all the religious sites. <laughs> Instead, for some, it's this weekly jaunt to church. For others, an occasional visit to special services. The essential thing in heaven and earth is this, that there should be a long obedience in the same direction, and thereby results, and has always resulted in the long run, something which has made life worth living. It is this long obedience in the same direction, which the mood of the world does so much to discourage. <laughs> Because there's so many good things. There's so many good things. And yet, the enemy of the joy in Jesus isn't the licentious life. It's often Netflix, Netflix and apple pie. It's the good things in life. Jesus continues to hammer this idea home. Here's what he says. We treasure Jesus more than our reputation. So, so wrestle with this with me, because most of the commentators would say family. I think that's the next one. I had a great conversation with my father-in-law wrestling through this one. And so wrestle with this one. What, what is he pressing us with here? Here's what he says. To another, he said, follow me. But Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Now in a patriarchal society, this is a pretty big deal. He didn't say my coworker. He didn't say my cousin. He says, let me go and bury my father. Now, just imagine for a second. If you didn't show up to your father's funeral, what would people begin to say about you? Here's what Jesus says. He says, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. This message doesn't feel like it's often the one that gets preached in Western evangelical Christianity. 
This is not the like butterflies and roses, like, man, come and follow Jesus. It's going to make your life better. You're going to win all those softball games instead. It's this radical call. Does Jesus feel like a jerk when he says this? Like, come on. It's my father. What do you mean? Let the dead bury the dead. So when he says that, I think he's saying the spiritually dead bury the dead. Why? Because obviously he's not saying don't go to funerals. He's not saying don't mourn the loss. But let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Why? Because you've got more important things to do. And as you take a stand in following Jesus, there's going to be a cost to your reputation as people go, what are you doing? And yet this call continues to get more and more radical. Then he says this. We treasure Jesus more than our family. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my house. Now, you guys know we moved here from Southern California, right? Can you imagine how my family or Casey's family, our friends, extended family, would have responded if we said, hey, you know, we're not saying farewell, good luck. Because along the way of that transition, there were multiple moments of saying farewell. Casey and I spent a year in Eastern Europe, and there were multiple farewells. And we only went for a year. There were multiple farewells along the journey. Can you imagine the reaction? Hey, we're, we're not going to have any farewell parties, sorry. So I'm, I'm a father of four now, and, and, I'm, and I'm envisioning some of these moments. We're seeing grad parties today. Right? Weddings, different opportunities. But Lord, let me first say well to those at my home. Seems like a reasonable request. Now, we don't see the response of any of these three. Want to take a guess why? (laughs) They could have. We don't know. It's It's not the point. Come on, Dan. It's not the point. Jesus isn't making rules. He's trying to give us a sense of what it means to truly follow him as he sets his face to Jerusalem. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. The Terry was hanging with the worship team. It was fun seeing him illustrate what it means because this concept is so foreign to me. I am a city boy through and through. I remember the first time I showed up and there was those PVC pipes sticking out of the ground. I turned to someone, I was like, what, what are those things? <laughs> well and septic, David. I'm like, what? what's well and septic? It's, it's new to me, right? New to me. So a plow, right? You can understand just putting your head. In our world, I would have wondered if Jesus would have said, you can't text and drive. <laughs> you, you, can't be, you can't be driving by looking in the rearview mirror. If you're distracted, you're going to lose sight because like the plow, it's going to start to veer. In the same way, there's this focus that exists in our lives. There's this directionality of what it means. No one puts his hand to the plow and looks back. 
So my heart goes to this radical call. Following Jesus is this radical movement. Not as sexy, not as glamorous as a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. What if Jesus promised he's going to make your life healthy, wealthy, and wise, and yet, here's what we know. Like those softball girls declared, Jesus is better. There's happiness in him that supersedes any circumstance in life, and so we long to follow him as he sets his face to Jerusalem. Following Jesus is more than just watching him, being associated with him, knowing a lot about him. Our world knows about followers, right? Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you can follow anybody. Elon Musk, right? You can click and you can have a sweet little interaction. Here's some updates, tips and tricks about their life. Following Jesus is much more than watching him, being associated with him, or knowing a lot about him. But here's my fear. Even as we hear a message like this, where does your heart go? I know where mine goes as a Pharisee. So I'm just going to do more and try harder. Tomorrow, I'm going to follow Jesus better. I'm going to stop caring about this stuff of life less or more. I'm going to give that stuff up. And yet, this journey is not one of duty and obligation. You don't will yourself into this. Instead, you keep seeing how precious Jesus is and the things of this life continue to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We continue to believe there is more in Jesus over our homes, our reputations, our family. He longs to bring spiritual healing, emotional healing, And we pray that in his grace, even physical healing, that he might be changing our circumstances. And yet if he doesn't, like the softball girls declared, is he still sweet? Following Jesus is radical. And then I hope you hear around here consistently, this is not just a religious Rambo experience. Following Jesus is relational. So following Jesus for us, building community and seeking transformation, that is the heart of a disciple. And so following Jesus is embracing Jesus as our greatest treasure. Does he sit on the throne of our hearts? But then do we do that alone? No. So I'm going to invite the worship team up. Because following Jesus, we do it together. As your pastor, I need other people in my life. We need other people. It is a team sport. The spiritual journey to fight for more joy in Christ is a team sport. And so following Jesus inevitably leads to linking arms with others. That's why we do a baby dedication. Because we know it's not just predicated on our ability alone. And yet, that could lead us to a holy huddle mentality. For us, we long to seek transformation, to promote Jesus' mission as the most significant investment of our lives. Pray with me as we uh, try to live that out a little bit more fully. God, you're so good. We long to follow you. Thank you for pressing your words a little bit more closely to our hearts of the weight of what it means to live out this call. Always for your glory, we pray. Amen.